Welcome to the 2020-30 podcast. I am Magdalena Schaffrin from Studio MMO4 and sitting here with Max Gilgman. Also from Studio MMO4. <laughs> Today we are having our new guest, Veronica Bates-Cassetli, and she will be talking about life cycle analysis, questions around data creation and measurement, and also deconstruction, the <laughs> idea of actually impact measurement. Yeah, I mean, she's she's very critical, a critical, critical mind, a critical voice in the industry at the moment. Um, certainly not everybody's darling, but I think a very important voice just in the way that she opens up new spaces for, for different discourses and different perspectives. And one of, one of them is really that she highly criticizes that the life cycle analysis, the LCAs that are one of these main tools at the moment to measure sustainability of a product, of a process, that this is by far not holistic enough. And for example, one of these things where she always mentions that this should be part of an analytic uh, process is the amount of wares you can get out of a piece of clothing um, because that would kind of really recreate and change the footprint of it. And this would obviously go against a lot of these super fast fashion things that are worn one, two, three times, and then you have to discard them, and then you have a lot of trouble to do that with the with this amount of clothes, while at the same time also the garment itself is, is not being used properly. So you have a lot of energy input at the beginning, and then the product is not being used. So that's really bad. Maybe we should have a short clearance on this term life cycle analysis because maybe you should know that uh, most of the analysis are only referring or only are referring to the um, value chain and not looking at the usage phase because it's also pretty complicated to measure of course I mean if the product is sold we all have a our products and our like closets and wearing them and uh, discarding them somewhere or not or what, whatever we are actually doing it. But um, this is very hard to gain and gather data from us consumers on how long we are wearing things, how long, we are, how often we are wearing them, how we wash and everything. But this is, uh, this makes a lot of uh, impact also on the footprint. Absolutely. I mean, in general, I mean, one says that within the, the, the processes of the fashion industry where also there's the high energy use, chemical use, etc. That's the biggest impact within the value chain, the supply chain. But then the actual use of, of clothes is obviously the other massive impact. And that has such a difference if you wear a piece of clothing one time or 20 times. It, it really changes the footprint. It totally changes the sustainability impact. And so in that sense, I think you're right. It's really complicated to measure this um, Uh, on, on the consumer level. But I mean, I'm sure one could develop processes to make a test and to kind of predict how often you can use a garment. As complicated as it is to have this kind of measured at every kind of person's garments, but at the same time, the discourse is super important. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know more or less like how often you can wear a garment or like at least you take care to have garments that can be used endlessly. Oh, endlessly, that's a big word. Uh, I know. <laughs> 
Um, I don't actually know. I haven't really thought about how often I use my garments, but um, I personally admire good quality and also like um, high quality fabrics because I like the feeling of it. And I personally also don't like so much um, polyester and any chemical fibers on my skin. So I'm a bit special maybe there, but I don't know. How often do you use clothes? I mean, my favorite uh, pair of trousers, I have usually two pairs of them then or also like with shirts and also with like pullovers or other um, things or dresses then i mean in phases i will i would wear them several years what about you i, I still have um well by now it's jeans shorts i must say but uh, jeans from h&m from like 20 25 years ago um, in a time when their fast fashion wasn't as fast yet and the materials were still better than, than nowadays, I think. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I wear everything a lot, I think. I mean, I have a lot of things, but also I, I, I always kind of have them back in, in, in my wardrobe. I think, I mean, we, we see each other kind of quite regularly and I do see you in, in similar kind of, or in the same dresses again and again. And, and also I feel this is a nice thing. I mean, I, there's some dresses that I enjoy totally when you come to the office and, oh, wow, look, it's that dress again. It's, it's a good day. Um, and, and so I think also there's maybe a little bit of this weird element of shaming, uh, having the same that is uh, in, in social media and making things more complex. But the focus on, on, on the wear as a perspective for the industry, I think, is a really interesting, just open-to-be-discussed idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's also about uh, second-hand uses. I mean, it's also pretty funny to go to yes. um, second-hand stores and find uh, nice vintage clothes. And this is a problem also for the industry because um, talking to like a recycler, and I've been talking to one of the biggest recycling plants uh, like yeah, a couple of months ago and they were also stating and I mean this is a, a known <laughs> this is known also in the industry that uh, the quality of clothing are is going down very much like in the last couple of years but also like in a in a term of like the last looking at the last 20 or 30 years and this is a problem Absolutely. I mean, it's not just that the clothes are so badly produced nowadays, often in this fast, hyper-fast fashion scenery, that you can't even wear them more often, but you also produce way more waste. And this waste is really, it doesn't have a value anymore. So for many, many years, obviously, it's recycling companies, collecting companies for charity, for secondhand, etc., they could always create value out of that waste, which then wasn't waste. But nowadays, actually, fashion is producing mainly waste and not something that can be reused anymore. So it's a double problem. Uh, it's, it's a problem on like... Um, well, we're not using um, the clothes rightly in the first place. And then we have even more clothes that become proper waste. And we have to deal with that waste problem too. So if we would really get to a higher quality, we could solve a lot of problems with kind of one aspect. At this point, we can always uh, refer to Vivian Westwood, who said, and this is so very true in this discussion, buy less, choose well, and make it last. Yes. But also I think we can add that there's more and more new business models around secondhand recommerce, about donation, about rental, about sharing, that also all go into this direction. And, and these business models, they will favor clothes that have a good quality that can be worn more often. So I do have a bit of hope, really, that um, this Vivian Westwood kind of quote becomes gets a new quality with this new ways of actually using and getting fashion nowadays. 
It's true. And I mean, it's also very funny to uh, have new things and also try out new looks. Um, I mean, this is also something I do. I mean, beside my everyday <laughs> life, I mean, where I, I really like my clothes and also wear them a lot. But uh, I now I just borrowed some things for a fashion week uh, when we had our last summit and uh, was dressing up in different looks. And that was really funny. But I, I only used them then and then I could give it back and then I can uh, use other clothes uh, next time. Yeah, but that's also the perfect use case, isn't it? If you're on a stage, if you're somewhere where you want to pop a bit, you get something really interesting and you rent that for one use, two uses, and then you give it back and you don't have the hustle anymore, but you still had the nice moment. Absolutely. So uh, shall we listen to the discussion of Veronica Bates-Cassetli, what she is like uh, talking about and her um, ideas? Yes, let's hit the play button. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for coming this morning. Thank you to Berlin 2020 for inviting me. As a quick preface, I shall be referring to a number of sources in this presentation. You will, of course, want to check them yourselves before using any of it. So I'm going to post a kind of a version of this presentation on my website, which is veronicabatescasatli.com, uh, later this week. Now, I'm here to open the second day, well, the second full day of this full session, to talk to you a little bit about the question of interstakeholder trust and the trust of consumers, not to mention law enforcement, when it comes to sustainable apparel's use, misuse, and frankly, complete misunderstanding of data, of what constitutes reliable data and what is just meaningless numbers that don't actually represent any reality. I would like to refresh your memories of what I believe you discussed yesterday, namely that a sustainable world is one that operates within planetary boundaries whilst meeting the needs of all, all global citizens. It's a world that lives within the donut. And this is a nice screenshot of the donut uh, to remind you, uh, or possibly if you missed yesterday's session, to to introduce you to the donor. Now, it's obvious that for those currently falling short of life's essentials to be lifted above the donut's social foundation, they must, by definition, consume more, which means that those of us in the global north have to compensate by further reducing our compensation, our compensation, our consumption, sorry, to leave space within the boundaries for those who currently go without. Now, in apparel, in fashion, this automatically means that the only way To achieve a net reduction in global emissions is for the global north as a whole to buy fewer clothes and to wear each and every item more times. If your jeans have a production impact of 11 kilos of CO2e and they are worn 10 times, that is 1.1 kilo of CO2 per wear. If they have an impact of 20 kilos, and, but you wear them 100 times, that's only 0.02 kilos of CO2 per wear. Moreover, and this is really important, in the second case, after 100 wears, there's only one pair of discarded jeans to process. In the first case, there are 10 pairs. So manufacturing and marketing clothes in a manner that increases the number of times that customers wear each item is doubly beneficial. It reduces impact per wear and it reduces waste. Now, contrary to what everybody has been telling you, The most, criteria, the most important criteria, whether a brand is or is not sustainable, it follows from this, lies not on the production side, but on the sales side. It lies in what a brand sells and how it sells it, by whether it persuades customers that the little extra in price is more than compensated by the staying power of the product, or whether its sales model is constant drops and discounts championed by battalions of influencers who churn through new outfits daily and convince their followers to do the same. 
Now, the other obvious conclusion for apparel sustainability to be drawn from the donut is that much of fashion comes from the global south. It comes from the indigenous Quechua and Ayamara who raise alpaca in Peru. It comes from subsistence smallholders in Benin and Burkina Faso who rotate their food crops with a cash crop, cotton, uh, in order to pay for everything from their children's education to fuel and healthcare. And it comes from garment workers in Bangladesh, Myanmar and China who cut and trim so much of the world's clothing. Now, the positive message that I would like you all to take away with you today is that this automatically means that fashion is uniquely placed to assist in lifting the world's most deprived into the safe, just space that all brands claim to be aiming for, since they all claim uh, to adhere to the UN SDGs. These aims can be realised by such simple measures as paying a living wage, by introducing more equitable purchase contracts, and by swapping synthetics for farmed fibres. Now, do LCAs measure any of this? The answer is no. LCAs measure environmental impact and environmental impact alone. Now, this means, of course, that if all you have is an LCA or some environmental data, then you, and you can't prove that whatever it is that you're referring to made the farmers or workers better off. And here, self-reported data is not, um, is categorically not proof. Uh, and you'll see why a little later. So if you can't prove it, then you can only refer to whatever it might be as having improved environmental impact. Don't use the word sustainability at all, unless you can satisfy the socioeconomic condition. And that brings us very neatly to the topic of today's presentation, which is our recent white paper on LCAs. So LCAs don't measure sustainability. They only measure environmental impact. How well do they do that? And the answer, I'm afraid, is that it rather depends. The first problem, as our white paper demonstrates, is that LCAs are not absolute. They are not a sausage machine. They are not a cookie cutter. From any given set of raw data, there is no single unique value that will be automatically generated for greenhouse gas emissions, water consumption, eutrophication, et cetera, et cetera. And vastly different reported impacts can be obtained from exactly the same data by using different models, different methodologies, and or different boundaries. And you're going to see some examples of this in a minute. Okay, so there is no established LCA model that everyone in the apparel sector uses. The International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, has guidelines, and many commercial LCAs in particular will tell you that they were produced to ISO standards. But an array of different methodologies and boundaries are ISO compliant. Whilst a standard for data collection, and data is the most critical variable in every LC model, and you'll see a little more about that shortly, it does not appear to exist. So imagine then that you are a brand, a manufacturer, or an initiative, and you've decided to commission an LCA you're faced with an array of choices. The first is, will your LCA be proprietary or will you make the detailed analysis open source and freely available? Now, ISO 14021-2016, in fact, states that consumer-facing claims cannot be made if the verification depends on confidential business information. And as we're going to see, this is highly problematic. Okay, so the next choice you have, what type of LCA will you use? Will it be an attributional LCA? where you measure the impact of the average producer? Or will it be a consequential LCA, where you measure the impacts of the producers who are most likely to increase or reduce production respectively in the face of a change in market conditions? And then the next choice you have is what boundaries will you select to determine which up or downstream impacts are going to be included? Will you include the upstream impacts of manure, for example? And that's primarily uh, the methane emitted by the cows uh, in producing manure. Or are you going to exclude that? 
What method of allocation will you use in the case of co or byproducts, whether these are inputs or outputs? Will you use economic allocation, where impacts allocated to each co-product in proportion to the contribution that they make to the lifetime value of the whole? Or will you use biophysical allocation, for example, by protein, where impacts are allocated between meat and wool, for example, are based on their relative protein content? Or will your LCA allocate between co-products by system expansion? Now, this is typically used in consequential LCAs, and it looks at what the co-product could or does replace, and it deducts the impact from one of one of them uh, from the other. Now, as a database model, obviously the most critical variable is the quality of the underlying data. It doesn't matter how rigorous your LCA is, how inclusive of every possible up or downstream impact. If the base data is bad, and by that I mean it's out of date, unrepresentative, collected without adequate scientific understanding, then the impact values generated will be meaningless nonsense or what is known as GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. So it's your choice. Which cohort will you obtain your data from? Who will collect the data? How large and representative will your sample be? Now, all of these variables will significantly impact the outcomes. And since you get to choose, you will probably select between the options based on opportune interests. For farm fibers, for instance, there's always a temptation to choose years and locations where conditions were particularly propitious in terms of rainfall and pest incidents. For industrial production, you would likely be unwilling to allow evaluation of any units that are not best in class. Data collection is a science. Sample cohorts must be both representative and they must be large enough, and the data must be independently collected. Brands, manufacturers, or initiatives reporting their own data does not constitute a sound basis for evaluation. Now, we have an excellent example of the importance of independent collection in obtaining valid data rather than GIGO uh, from two studies, an LCA and a Social Environmental Impact Assessment, or SEIA, they were both commissioned by a Kofra Industries Foundation, Laudes Foundation, which was formerly known as the CNA Foundation, uh, who are, as you probably all know, are a long-time promoter and supporter of organic production, uh, organic cotton production. And these studies were undertaken in 2017-18, and their aim was to compare the outcomes for three types of farmer, conventional cotton farmers, BCI or Better Cotton Initiative cotton farmers, and organic cotton farms. For both studies, the data was collected in the Kargan area of Madhya Pradesh, India. But it was collected from very different sample sizes and in different ways. Now, the data for the SEIA was collected from 3,600 farmers, 1,200 of each type, whilst the LCA data was collected from only 300 farmers, only 100 of each type. In the case of the SEIA, data collection was undertaken by a third party. For the LCA, it appears to have been collected by the initiatives concerned, and I quote, with the help of CNA, i.e. now Laudes Foundation. Now, from a statistical point of view, the SEIA, given its larger sample size and given its independent data gathering method, is a considerably more reliable statistical model. Happily, SEIAs and LCAs collect very similar data, but in different forms. An LCA, for example, looks at the volume of irrigation that was used in tons per hectare. An SEIA we'll look at how much the farmer spent on irrigation. When we compare the two studies, we see that the LCA claims outcomes for organic cotton that are far more favorable to the organic production system than those identified by the SCIA. Concretely, as you can see, the LCA claims to have found that organic farmers used 60% less irrigation than their conventional neighbors. But the SCIA found that organic farmers devoted 25% more labor days 
and 11% more expenditure to irrigation than their conventional counterparts. Now, since these farms are all in the same place at the same time, presumably they all pay the same per unit of irrigation water, which means they cannot have spent 11% more on 60% less. In other words, the SEIA found that organic farmers were using at least as much and probably 10% more irrigation than the conventional farmers, not less, let alone 60% less, as the LCA claims. Which means that if brands or consumers followed the outcomes of the LCA and purchased organic cotton in the belief that they were reducing global water consumption, they in reality increased it. Yet you will see repeatedly brands, initiatives, and even proposed legislation basing claims on LCAs without providing any insight uh, whatsoever into when, where, how the data was collected, and let alone the boundaries and methodologies employed. Now, as already pointed out, anyone commissioning an LCA has an array of ISO-compliant methodologies to choose from. The chart that you're going to see now only covers a single environmental variable, and that is greenhouse gas or GHG emissions. And here we should remember that the most commonly used sustainability index in the apparel sector, which is the HIG MSI, has five impact variables, and the proposed EU product environmental footprint, or PEF, has 16. Now, we can presumably expect these kind of variations to apply to all five or six variables. Now, if you can see the nice screenshot of the chart now, please. There we are. Okay. Right. So... Chart one, which you see now, is adapted from an open access, blind, peer-reviewed wool LCA, which was published in the International Journal of Life Cycle Assessment. Now, this compared the purported greenhouse gas emissions, or GHGs, using the same data from four different sheep farms, and then applying seven different methods of allocation between wool and meat. So when you look at that chart, you can see the four different colors. Each of those represents a separate farm. And you can see the seven different application methods and the drastically different results that they produced. Now, what product is, 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 is being studied here is not what we're interested in. The chart is here purely to illustrate the huge differences in impact that can be calculated by any given LCA from any set of data. If we just look at the red bar, which represents the GHG impact of one farm, which is farm one, we'll call it that, the GHG emissions per kilogram of greasy wool vary from minus 27 to plus 39 kilos of CO2e, which is a difference of 65 kilos of CO2e per kilo of wool. And this is purely as a function of the method of allocation selected. Now, of course, if you're commissioning an LCA, you will have a tendency uh, to choose the most favorable allocation method for your fiber. So to interpret LCA results, you must understand whether vested interests were involved in commissioning the LCA in the first place, as this could bias uh, the results. Secondly, there has to be transparency over the allocation method used. Only LCAs using exactly the same method of allocation are potentially comparable. And precisely the same caveats apply to interpreting uh, comparisons between brands and manufacturers. Based on the chart above, if you were told that the grey producer or farm four had a GHG impact of only 11 kilos of CO2e per kilo of wool that he produced, and that the red one, farm one, had an impact of almost 40 kilos of CO2e per kilo of wool that he produced, how many of you would consider asking what method of allocation was used? And who would then realize that even protein allocation produces radically different results, depending on whether the direct protein to meat 
or protein utilization is considered. Because when you look at those the chart, see the four on the left, they're all protein allocation, but different types of protein allocation. And they obviously produce very different numbers. If you, if you consider the same method applied, if you just look at one of the blocks, you can see that when the same method is applied to both of the farms, the GHG impacts are much closer. But the Hig MSI, for example, uh, uses allocation by protein for wool, but it uses economic allocation for both hides and silk. Now, how many people are aware of this or realize the difference that this makes? And you can see the difference on that chart. If allocation by protein were also used for silk, purported impacts for that fiber would drop by 60%. So when presented with ostensibly massively different impacts based on LCAs, it is perfectly possible that the impacts are not radically different at all, and that with different boundaries and methodologies applied, the relative rankings could be easily reversed. Now, it should be clear to you all by now that when someone tells you that LCAs have demonstrated that this product is less environmentally harmful than that one, uh, you should take it with a considerable pinch of salt. A closer examination will generally reveal, sorry, I was just checking the time, generally the data quality is poor and the purported impact values are unsubstantiated and misleading. Moreover, since LCA outcomes cannot be compared unless the methodologies and boundaries are identical, and since there is no suite of LCAs for global fibres all produced using identical boundaries and methodologies, let alone robust and representative data, the numbers currently banded around from the Sustainable Parallel Coalition's Hig Material Sustainability Index, the most widely used index, to the individual product claims on many brand and manufacturer websites are in fact at best meaningless and at worst they are pernicious. Now, what does this mean if you're a brand? In a nutshell, if someone tells you that they have an index or app that you can apply to your offering to tell consumers how much water or CO2 they save by buying your tops or trainers rather than anyone else's, and by just how much you will enhance your sales if you do this, you might want to think twice and consider your potential liability both legal and reputational. Now, the Norwegian Consumer Authority just ruled that Norona's use of the Hig MSI for organic cotton to make consumer-facing claims was misleading, and such claims are no longer permitted in Norway. A class action lawsuit at H&M for making misleading comparative sustainability claims on its website has just been filed in New York. Now, as one leading authority in fashion law, Alan Baer, recently put it, and I quote, the key learning is, unless you and you alone really can be sure that what you are doing is better for the environment, it is far too early in all this to start boasting about it in your marketing materials. Since no one can be entirely sure about the environmental impact of much of fast fashion at this time, making a point of it until science has done more groundwork could well lead to more troubles like this. And uh, I would respectfully suggest that you listen to him. Thank you all very much for your time. Okay, this was Veronica's uh, speech, and I think uh, she's been hopping quite a lot of and uh, touching a lot of uh, points in her speech, like different topics. Maybe we should like um, sort a bit, <laughs> like the different things for you also, because maybe you would be able to put like five keynotes from her speech <laughs> on all the different topics she like pointed out. So one of actually one of my favorite uh, books is the Donut Economy. Max, have you actually read it now? No, still not. Somehow I don't find the time, unfortunately. This is your homework for next edition. 
No, I really recommend, and I hope you ha you found the link also in the show notes um, to this really mind blowing book because we heard a lot of capitalism critics and Kate Rayworth who was actually writing the Donut Economics book she is uh, describing a way of an economical vision which is actually working inside our boundaries because we have two ways of boundaries on this earth one is an ecological ceiling and we have been um, like with the climate crisis for example and other resources we have been expanding over our top level already so actually we are in a phase and this is pretty urgent as we and she also pointed out beforehand uh, that we need to uh, regenerate that that we are actually coming back in the circle in the outer circle that's the then on planetary the inner circle. boundaries i think well people say often huh? Yeah, it's the planetary boundaries and uh, the inner circle is the social foundation and there we overspend also quite a lot. So we actually, if you have a look at the graphics, which I also very much recommend <laughs> um, that we see, um, and the idea is actually to work economically in these two boundaries. And this is also why it's called uh, donut, because it actually looks like a donut. Yeah, but as you said, I mean, she didn't just touch on this very important theory donut economy she also touched in general on these topics of um, yeah how to have inter-stakeholder trust and the trust of consumers so i think this is an important aspect too we we do measure so much we try to measure so much and at the end we we never find we don't have the perfect systems yet and at the same time maybe here and there we're kind of also losing trust so like trust-based systems i think are an important part of, of looking into the future. But again, also a question or a lots of questions attached to that. But also she touched and she tried to, with all this kind of criticism that she brings, um, I do appreciate she tries to also uh, bring positive messages. Well, one of these parts was that, well, we, we could change things quite simply if we really go into a few baseline topics. And what she was saying was, Living wage, paying a living wage is one of these important topics. Looking into how the buying process works. So like how the relationship between the brands and the suppliers are and how this can be made in, in a more equitable um, purchasing kind of uh, contract style. And then the last thing is uh, she, she claims that obviously, uh, not sure if obviously, but from her point of view, obviously if one listens to her, um, synthetics uh, should be phased out and we should really go into farmed fibers um, which then brings in also the potential for regenerative impacts. And I mean this is also a nice connection to the last episode where we heard about um, biodegradable synthetics which could also be a good solution for phasing out like like the normal synthetics and uh, where we also talked a lot about impact and um, how we can have a beneficial impact on this earth. And just referring to this type of uh, living wage or this example of living wage, and this is also referring to the donut economics because, I mean, this is an economics which is actually thought of being beneficial for the earth and also for the people living on earth and working in this economy. And so maybe to close it up, the main criticism I think she brings here is The current systems we're measuring with, they're not functional enough. They don't measure all of the things that we should be measuring if we want, for example, to reach the sustainable development goals. 
where most of the world agrees we should <laughs> get there. And and having said that, I think it's it's a really good bridge also to then our next guest, um, Dr. Erika de Grave, uh, who will be talking about decolonizing fashion in the next time we meet. And it's actually also another uh, view and uh, where we should change our point of view at looking differently to the people and how we worked in, uh, with, with other people and also in the value chains uh, with other companies um, together. Yeah, I think one of these buzzwords here is unlearning so that we can kind of relearn in different ways and, and have new and, and I think also hopefully at the end easier perspectives. At the moment, everything feels very complex and heavy often. But I think one problem of that is we're looking at things from the wrong point of view. We need to find different perspectives to find the right solutions for the future. That was really nicely put together, Max. So please um, keep updated, be updated um, on 202030summit.com on our website. You'll find further information and also follow us on 202030summit on Instagram and LinkedIn. And of course, have a look in the show notes. And this podcast, as usually, you find on all the known platforms. And I will actually check out if there's a podcast about the donut economy next. So maybe I don't have to read the book. <laughs> Do so. Yeah.